Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, President Biden signs the Respect for Marriage Act. This law matters to every single American, no matter who you are or who you love. Albert Moeller provides analysis. He signed legislation that basically puts the federal government very much on the side of same-sex marriage. We'll look at the various pro-life measures that were on the ballot in the 2022 election and lessons we need to learn. We're being outspent and outmaneuvered when it comes to the narrative that's being shared. Iran continues to crack down on protests. There are concerns that Iran is preparing to execute Amir Nasser Azadani, a 26-year-old professional soccer player. While the people of Iran continue to push back. They're fed up having to wear a head cover they don't believe in, being forced to follow a religion that they don't even adhere to. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin in Washington, D.C., where on Tuesday this week, the president signed the Respect for Marriage Act amidst great fanfare. Vice President Kamala Harris, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer were present and each delivered remarks, as did President Biden. Today, I signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law. Deciding whether to marry, who to marry, is one of the most profound decisions a person can make. As I said when the bill passed in the Senate, We should not be fooled by the Orwellian language in the name of the bill. The bill does nothing to strengthen one man and one woman marriage. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. I want you to hear a pattern that emerged over and over again in the official comments yesterday. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, quote, finally, finally, thank you to the American people, the vast majority of whom have understood that the inexorable march towards equality is what America is all about. Wait just a minute inexorable march towards equality? Just hold on. He says this is what America's all about. That's how he says we should read history. The past, well, that's oppressive. The present, well, that's less oppressive. And the future, well, it's going to be even less oppressive or even more liberated. This is known as a progressivist understanding of history. And it shows up again and again and again. And we need to understand the logic behind it. And we need to understand there's more than history that is at stake here. So just keep in mind, Senator Schumer spoke of an inexorable, that is, unstoppable march towards equality, which he said is what America is all about. The same progressivist idea shows up in a self-congratulatory statement made by the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And by the way, when I say it's self-congratulatory, I don't mean that according to her own logic, there's not congratulations to be had here. Because she has actually been rather consistent in her advocacy of LGBTQ plus rights. But she said yesterday, quote, one of my final acts in speakership was to sign the Respect for Marriage Act that the president will sign today. But she said, our work isn't done. Our work isn't done and won't rest until the Equality Act. So she says, this is where we are. We were in a very, very bad situation in the past. We're in a less bad situation now. She says, I'm proud of that as she goes out as speaker. But she says, there is still work to be done. There is still liberation to be earned. 
President Biden, in his very excited comments made yesterday, began by speaking of the place of this event, the signing of this bill in history. He wrote this, quote, For most of our nation's history, we denied interracial couples and same-sex couples from these protections. We failed. He said we failed to treat them with an equal dignity and respect, and now the law requires an interracial marriage and same-sex marriage must be recognized as legal in every state in the nation, end quote. Well, that's not exactly what it does, but nonetheless, it will have that effect. So I'll say the president wasn't wrong. He just didn't say that very carefully. But what he did say quite carefully is that, again, there's a past, present, and future. And he's placing the signing of this legislation yesterday in a history that really is embedded with a very big argument. You'll notice the conflation of two issues. Skin color and sexual behavior, sexual relationships just got put together as the same thing. The point here as Christians is that we should understand that every single human being made in the image of God is equal and equal in human dignity and respect, regardless of skin color. But that would not be extended to the contradiction of Scripture to say that same-sex marriage, because Scripture can't even imagine same-sex marriage, would be on par with marriage as defined by the Creator and embedded in creation. Those are two fundamentally different things. But in his own ideological frame— Joe Biden, to his political advantage, combined them as if they mean the same thing. But again, the issue of history and the meaning of history showed up again and again. The president said this, quote, We've seen over the decades progress that gives us hope that every, every generation will continue our journey toward a more perfect union, end quote. Well, let's just take the president at his word for a moment. Let's just imagine what he means. Well, he signed yesterday, proudly, Publicly, he signed legislation that basically puts the federal government very much on the side of same-sex marriage. It certainly means that the federal government must recognize same-sex marriage. And then he says, this is just another step towards a future which is even more liberated and less oppressed. Well, what exactly does the president have in mind there? Well, my point is this. He would not be honest to tell us even if he knew where he thinks history is headed. But he is just sure that history is headed towards less oppression, more liberation. And he sees himself yesterday as playing a very important role on that stage. Later in the same comments, the president spoke of our progress from Hawaii, the first state to declare that denying marriage of same-sex couples is unconstitutional, to Massachusetts, the first state to legalize marriage equality for couples. He just goes on again. We celebrate our progress. Over the decades, progress gives us hope that every day, every generation will continue our journey towards a more perfect union. Again and again, the same theme. Toward the end of his address, President Biden actually said something that I don't think many people noticed. But it's astoundingly important. He said that the legislation he signed yesterday is, quote, about realizing the promise of the Declaration of Independence, end quote. So in other words, he's telling us that same-sex marriage is implied in the Declaration of Independence. I just wonder what would happen if someone had tried to make that argument to those who signed the Declaration of Independence in the birth of our nation. While the Respect for Marriage Act passed with bipartisan support in both chambers of Congress, pro-life measures on the ballot in the 2022 election didn't fare so well. Nicole Hunt, our next guest, says this election was a gut punch to the pro-life movement. Nicole is a writer and spokesperson at Focus on the Family, and she was a guest of Rick Probst on Faith Talk Atlanta. Where do we begin? Tell us about the change that needs to be made. 
Yeah. And for context, let me just back up and set the stage for the listeners, right? So we have the election and this past November, we had five states that were considering abortion-minded statutes. Three of those states were going, were considering whether or not to enshrine abortion in their state constitution. And those were being pushed by the abortion lobby. And then in two states, there was a question, and these were being pushed by the pro-life movement, of either protecting life in the state constitution or protecting life in state statute. And sadly, shockingly, really, as a gut punch for the pro-life movement, in all of those states, um, the pro-life position was rejected. I don't know. I mean, of course, we know when everything started changing, when, when, when Roe v. Wade was turned over, Immediately, we had celebrities, we had politicians. I mean, it was like a barrage, uh, which I don't, did we expect that? I guess we did. But it's just every time you turned the channel or read a uh, read an article, it was just, you know, how uh, terrible, horrendous it was that we would allow this change mm-hmm. to happen. And do you think that some of that just it, it caused fear. And so it just people just kind of backed up. Maybe we opened Pandora's box here. Maybe we should have left well enough alone. Do you think fear was a heavy motivator here? For sure. And I mean, the truth is, is, you know, when we're talking about funding issues, like this, the, the, the impact of the media and celebrities on this issue, I think also impacted kind of that funding dynamic, right? Like for instance, the abortion lobby, this is what they do for a living. They sell abortions. So Investing in campaigns is basically an investment, a business investment. Hmm. They're procuring their method of business as long as possible. And so if they can turn out the right election results, then they get to keep their business in place. But I think another thing that plays into this is how much the media also gives like free press coverage for the abortion lobby, as do do the celebrities. So it really makes it difficult when the pro-life movement is left. We don't have those people in our corner, not many of them. There are some. We don't have many of them in our corner. So there's no no backup from media or from celebrities, and we don't have the kind of funding. And so we're we're being outspent and outmaneuvered when it comes to the narrative that's being shared, which is why it's just really important for the pro-life movement. We need to reassess if we're going to run ballot measures they need to be funded. Mm-hmm. And if we and if we can't fund them, then that brings me to the next part, which is we need to rethink our strategy. Our strategy right now of running ballot initiatives that are not funded to win is a losing strategy in the long run for the pro-life movement. Mm-hmm. And the specific case in point is Kentucky. Kentucky has pro-life measures already on the books. And they wanted to secure the pro-life position by saying that their state constitution does not have a right to the abortion in it. So that's what they were running. Well, in Kentucky, what what we see ended up happening was a lot of unintended consequences. First of all, they turned out a lot of abortion abortion rights supporters, people who want to support protect abortion were showing up to vote against this measure. Hmm. And then secondly, it it made a lot of the middle of the rotors not really know what to believe. We gave the pro-abortion lobby the opportunity to really motivate middle of the rotors, people who might sympathize with women who might feel like they have to get an abortion and, and they're not really sure what they believe about it. Well, we allowed them to spin a narrative that now has left a lot of middle of the rotors thinking that 
they also are pro-abortion. Hmm. And then finally, it's left the pro-life movement, you know, scrambling to try to recover after such a significant loss in a state where we really should have won. Yeah. And so I think this really just ties into what is the right strategy? We know that the abortion lobby, they are going to continue to run ballot measures because it's good for them. They can turn out their voters. They, they're able to win on the ballot measures. And then the truth is, is this is a strategy long-term, right? Because if the state constitutions protect abortion, then the state legislators cannot pass pro-life laws. And in fact, in many of these states, we may see many of the pro-life measures that are already in place. We may end up seeing them revoked as a violation now of the state constitution. So this is a very long-term strategy for the abortion lobby. So we need to have not only be considering, are we really going to move forward with ballot measures? Or are we going to rethink this? And then we also need to be thinking about how are we going to fight them at the ballot box when it comes to pro-life measures or to these measures that they're going to run. We've got to beat them at these ballot measures because they're targeting the states that they're targeting are pro-life states. That's where they're headed next. They've already identified six to seven pro-life states that have pro-life laws on the books, protecting pre-born human life. And they're going after those states because they want to see those laws overturned. Coming up, we'll look at the bold protests of the Iranian people seeking freedom. They're fed up having to wear a head cover they don't believe in, being forced to follow a religion that they don't even adhere to. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. In September of this year, 22-year-old Masha Amini died in Iranian custody as a result of her non-compliance with Iran's strict rules requiring head coverings for women. It sparked a protest movement that continues today, and the mullahs in charge continue to crack down. There are concerns that Iran is preparing to execute yet another protester. Amir Nasser Azadani, a 26-year-old professional soccer player, he's really the victim of a sham trial of these expedited death penalty proceedings that have already led to the execution of two other protesters just in the last few days. But the people don't seem to be cowering. Hedia Miramadi, a Christian convert from Islam, was a guest of Don Crow on Weva in the nation's capital. Well, people have been watching the World Cup. And, of course, uh, when the U.S. defeated Iran, one wondered, some wondered what impact that itself would have at home. But before we get into any of that, uh, really take us back to the conditions in Iran, even leading up to the World Cup. Uh, You referenced trouble going on since mid-September. Yes, it actually was sparked by a young woman that was arrested for improperly wearing her head cover because that is part of the criminal code in Iran and all parts of the country. And as a result of the injuries she sustained, she was brutally beaten in prison. She died from her injuries. And that just sparked worldwide protests of the Islamic rule in Iran that has now been decades, you know, since the Iranian Revolution in 79. And the people have just had it. And this movement in particular, as compared to the Green Revolution um, about a decade ago, is being led by women of all demographics. 
And as in the past, uh, or contrary to the past, when this may have driven folks into their home, and especially the women and the children, uh, you're saying that these are the people now out uh, really carrying the battle. And uh, in fact, I guess the men have come alongside and realized that the the, uh, regime needs to uh, hear their voices. Talk about the growth of this, because uh, so many countries, once the heavy-handed government raises its fist, it's so intimidating, people just say it's not worth it. That's quite the opposite here in Iran now, as I understand it. Yes, yes. And I think I want to point out, most importantly, is that people have to understand Iranian women. They're not like Afghan or Saudi women. So Iranian women, for generations, are fiercely independent, outspoken, and culturally much more aligned to Western civilization and outlook than Islamic and Middle Eastern. So the Islamic revolution has been hardest felt by Iranian women. And so for me, as a woman of Iranian descent, it is no surprise to me that they are leading this force because they are absolutely fed up with having to wear a head cover they don't believe in or being forced to follow a religion that they don't even adhere to. And it's just this pent-up frustration and this innate desire that God puts in all of us to be free. And it's finally coming to the surface. And men, of course, are coming alongside them. And what we hope to see is a international uprising that comes against the Iranian regime. And maybe finally, the world will see a change. Now, I noticed, uh, in fact, you've referenced it just a moment ago. For decades, you wrote, many wore a head cover that they did not believe in or uh, rather to uphold a religion they did not follow or no longer followed. And then you added, as a former Muslim of Iranian descent, I understand why the unveiling became the rallying cry of Iranian women. Talk about just the impact of that itself, uh, that they are uh, somehow put in some kind of category or class where they're not even supposed to show their face and why the unveiling itself became so significant as a trigger point. So, In my personal experience, I also felt oppressed by wearing a head cover. So even though I was a devout Muslim, I despised wearing a head cover. But it's something that the men of Islamic culture use to subjugate women. It's this way of controlling the female population. And so I'm not surprised this is a huge issue for them. As I understand it also from your column that uh, it's been worldwide in its impact in terms of citizens of the world, you write, showing their support for the plight of the Iranian people uh, in a lot of different ways. Billboards, uh, T-shirts, etc. Elaborate on this becoming a global phenomenon, which it has got to make the Iranian regime extremely nervous in and of itself. Yes, I, you know, I grew up in Southern California. We have a nickname for Los Angeles. It's called Tarangelis because there's so many Iranians that live in Los Angeles. And if you drive down the freeways in Los Angeles, you will see anywhere from three to five gigantic highway billboards that say women like freedom and show the Iranian flag and a picture of Masa Amini, the one who started the protest movement. So it warms my heart to see just average everyday people, whether they're Iranians or others that just want to support what they're trying to do. But I have to point out, I'm a little surprised that the Christian community and the evangelical community has not been as outspoken as they should be. And I don't know what the reason is for that, especially since it is the fastest growing church in the world and many organizations partner with Iranian underground churches. But in terms of being the voice for the voiceless, I haven't seen it as much as I would have liked. Well, you know, we could enter into a whole different discussion on that because I've talked about that concern a lot with uh, no less individuals than Congressman Frank Wolf and others who are deeply concerned about 
just the silence of the American church on whether it's the killings in Nigeria becoming one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian, on yes. now along with Iran. And uh, I've also talked with George Barna quite a few times about the, uh, this is my view, the church itself here in America seems to me, and this is a blanket statement, many churches are virile and strong and theologically sound, but if you hear some of the surveys that are coming out, the American church seems to have lost its way doctrinally and theologically, and it seems to me yes. thereby it lost, it's lost its backbone. What do you think? Absolutely. That was actually the topic of my article uh, last time. It, it is very disheartening to see when you, when you look at issues like the unborn and the recent legislation in, in California to allow birthday abortions, and the church did not come out against it. It's, it's very disturbing to see this kind of apathy towards political issues, and some even say that it's just because Christians have no place. As citizens of heaven, there's no place for Christians in the political system. And that, to me, is extremely disturbing. It's probably why the left has such control over our country and our politics now. It's because the church is not speaking out. You quote 1 Corinthians 12, 25, 26, God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And, of course, the title of your column is Why Christians Should Care About Iran's Protests. And I've said for years, Hedia, that it's not us and them. I've tried to teach our right. own church this. It, I, I know you share the same thing. It's not us here and them there. There's only one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one heaven to which we're all going. There's only one judgment seat to which we will all stand and give an account. So talk about the solidarity between this church in America that you're calling for with the people in Iran. Well, it, it, and like I said, it's interesting that the American church loves to support the underground movement. So they'll send millions of dollars to give Bibles and to gain resources to help with media outreach in spreading the gospel in Iran. But as soon as you say, be the voice for the voiceless, be politically active, talk to your congressman about sanctioning Iran so that the Iranian people can be free, including the Iranian church, people don't want to have a part in that. So there seems to be a disconnect between what all is entailed in supporting the Iranian church and parts of it are acceptable and other parts are not. I don't know what that stems from other than this, you know, notion that Christians should not be involved in politics. Coming up. They grow up so fast and all of a sudden they're out. And these moments, each Christmas builds new memories and you get to be one of the builders of that. An encouragement to invest in family this Christmas when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Christmas 2022 is upon us. If you're like me, things seem to speed up this time of the year. 
There's work to be done for work. There's work to be done for family. It seems there's just more, well, work to be done, all while the years are flying by. Danny Huarta of Focus on the Family has a great challenge for us all. He was a guest of Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk, Tampa Bay. A lot of parents in America, you know, the big babysitter is buying a phone or a pad or maybe four or five video games. And uh, so we load all these kids up with all these things, and then we don't spend time with them. That's a big error. That's what we're talking about today, the gift of parents' presence. Talk about that. Yeah, our time. That's something that we can't buy it back. It's so valuable. And yet many times we say we want to spend more time with kids. I hear a lot of parents say, man, I, I need to do this or I should spend more time. And why not start now? Why not start today? Just deciding to put things aside because there will always be demands. You do get vacation time, and many people leave vacation time on the table thinking that they need to make the entire world happy instead of actually investing of the time that they get to manage, uh, that we all get to manage, uh, with the relationships that matter most. And that is with our spouses, with our families, with our kids. And this is the time to do that. Uh, I know that recently... My daughter, we have, we have a lot, a lot of busyness going on in our house, and uh, she said, "Dad, can we, can we paint together?" And, and I said, uh, just looked at her for a moment and said, "Well, we, okay, yeah, let's do that." And then, and just pause in the middle of that sentence, right? I was going to say, we "Have a lot to do," and uh, and so we stopped, had some tea together, and for the next three, four days, whenever we had some pieces of, of time together or available, we decided to paint together and we, we developed or we, we completed this, this great painting that now she said, dad, let's put it here. And that's, I want to take that with me when, when I'm on my own, I have my own house. I want to remember this time. And that was one thing that she came up with in that moment. And now we're uh, talking about the, the next thing we're going to do when we have some free moments together and I just told her, I said, hey, thank you for giving me of your time. And she I modeled that, but it, we, we have gratitude for each other's time. And I wanted her to know that's a valuable thing she gave me. And, uh, and she said the same to me. And so it's just those, those little things like that. Maybe it's taking a walk together. Maybe it's going out and doing something outside together that your children love to do or indoors, whatever that is. But the fact is that time is something that is kind of elusive for us, and we lose it every day, especially through the phone. And that's where our minds sometimes get distracted. As parents, we need to model that we're going to put something aside so that mentally and emotionally and physically we're present with them because we hope for the same from them, that they are mentally, emotionally, and physically present with us. And so that invitation needs to be clear that I'm going to spend this time with you. And it's not with multiple people coming through the phone. And uh, realize with work and, and things like that, sometimes you, you have to have the phone. But when you can, putting that to the side so that you are not uh, wrestling with that fear of missing out on something out there, instead having the fear of missing out on something right in front of you. Uh, I mean, they grow up so fast, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're out. And these moments, each Christmas, each vacation time builds new memories, and you get to be one of the builders of that. You don't want to miss out on that. So I, this is more of a reminder rather than any kind of shaming, or uh, if you do feel a little guilt, maybe that's just a good reminder for you that, that you're unbalanced in that. 
And uh, we're all working on this together. Everyone uh, can encourage each other and push each other towards what matters most to us so that we don't go down the road and say, man, I wish I would have or have regrets mm-hmm, that we're, mm-hmm. uh, we're depressed in or anxious about. But enjoying the moments as they show up in front of us and being ready for those for us to just step in full mind and all. Because you could be there physically present, and if your mind's not there, your time is not being spent there. You're still in somewhere else. Remember, holidays are memory markers. Each year we build on that. That repetition creates a consistent memory with a person or with a group of people. And you are building that. You get to build that with your kids and in your home, the culture of of spending time together. And uh, we've started a tradition of cutting down a tree together, making a big deal. And that's beginning to create memories. Ask your kids to create a, a menu of things they would love to do. We love to feel known. And it begins with you listening to your kids. And maybe that's where you begin here, to listening and having patience as you spend time with your kids. That's what's gonna open up the door to those memories and to having time together. Just do it. Maybe one, two, three, four things, and then consistently do those over time, and kids will remember those. Coming up... The consent of the governed comes from Exodus. Os Guinness, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Os Guinness, the great theologian and public intellectual, has been a prolific writer for nearly 50 years. But it was his volume from May of 2021 that caught the attention of my colleague, Eric Metaxas. It's called The Magna Carta of Humanity, and it helps us understand ourselves in a fresh way. Here's Os Guinness with Eric Metaxas. You uh, basically say, and just correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm going off, that it was what we read in Exodus, which amazingly happened something like 34 centuries ago, that was the first genuine revolution that paved the way for what we think of now as uh, American-style self-government and the liberties that we have and cherish and, and, and all of this. I, I had not... Uh, I had never seen that connection made clearly the way you make it in the book, The Magna Carta of Humanity. Well, put it like this, Eric. I mean, if you look at the modern revolutions, there are five big ones. The English, the American, the China, uh, Russian... Uh, sorry, the French, the Russian, and the Chinese. People say, well, the first two are different. The English failed, and the American, of course, succeeded. But actually, the first two are very close, not just because they're English-speaking, but they both come from the Bible. The 17th century was called the biblical century because it was fascinated with what they called 
the Hebrew Republic. In other words, through the Reformation, the notion of sola scriptura, back to the Bible, they rediscover that Exodus, as Leon Cass puts it, is God's founding his nation. So even Thomas Hobbes, who's an atheist, explores Exodus, and many other of the great thinkers of the time did. So the ideas from Exodus are absolutely critical, and Americans don't know it. This is a big thing. This is why, you know, your book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, The Sinai Revolution and the Future of Freedom, as has happened a number of times when I read your books, I am deeply embarrassed that I didn't know this because it seems so extremely central and seminal. It's not just, oh, this is another idea that I can add on to my other day. It seems so central. So the idea that we haven't only forgotten our own founding and its roots, but the idea that that came out of the 17th century and that that, that these ideas uh, were known to come from the Bible, even people like um, uh, Hobbes and Thomas Paine, who were atheists, nonetheless knew there's no way around it. That's where this comes from. So the the idea that we have sloppily drifted into thinking this is something that came out of the Enlightenment and that everyone seems to think this is true, and it's not, it's an, it's an amazing thing. At mm-hmm. least for me, I have to pause and to try to take in the... But it's very important today. You think of people who are saying we've got to save democracy. As you know, the framers were very cherry of democracy because of all that Plato and others had warned would happen in democracy. But the American experiment is a republic, and that doesn't just mean you don't have a king. It was a republic based on the Hebrew republic, and so the Hebrew notion of covenant, that's the key idea, became constitution. And so you can see, as scholars point out, there are three simple ideas behind covenant that affect politics. One is based on freely chosen consent. The consent of the government comes from Exodus. But again, I I mean, look, uh, as you know, I'm a a, a devotee of Homer. And so to think that we are talking about something, about ideas that came into the world, came into history before the Trojan War ever was fought, uh, in, in times that are practically ancient. And yet these ideas, which are transcendent and are as fresh today uh, as ever came out of that world. It it is really amazing to me. In England, Oliver Cromwell, for better or worse, said Exodus is the direct parallel to what I'm trying to do. And of course he failed. But you think of the Mayflower Compact is a covenant. John Winthrop's speech on the Arbella is all about a covenant. When John Adams writes the first written constitution, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, he calls it not a constitution, but a covenant. Well, we have to remember how close uh, the things you just mentioned were to the Reformation. But I think these ideas have to be remembered. We have to stop and say, wait a minute, we, we have to go back. We've, we've lost the thread. It, mm-hmm. we, we, we didn't think... Uh, we needed to worry too much about keeping the thread uh, because we thought everyone knows this, but eventually everyone doesn't know it, and it's why we are where we are today. So you mentioned Daniel Elazar. Uh, is he the first one uh, to, to write 
at length about this in the, recent the times? First to write at great length, ten, 10 or so books on it. But you have others, Michael Walzer at Princeton, or Eric Nelson at Harvard. They're all writing in the same area. So it's a matter of serious scholarship now. It's not some cranky idea. But think of the significance. It means that America is a nation by intention and by ideas. And one of the implications of that you see from Exodus and Deuteronomy is that the leader is the servant of the people. Moses is the first great national, national leader described again and again and again as servant. Servant of the Lord, servant of his people. But here's the point. Moses becomes Moses, as the Jews put it, our teacher. In other words, leaders of a nation by intention and by ideas should be constantly calling their people back to it. That's what Lincoln did. He appealed to the better angel of the American nature. He believed in the declaration very profoundly. And you think today there are no national leaders who are even describing what made America great in the first place and then calling America back. That's the great missing thing today. A leader who's a national teacher and a national servant. It's not about the president. It's about the people. In history, it's either been someone senator or higher, or a charismatic leader with a small c, like a Martin Luther King. Yeah. At the moment, there's no charismatic leader in America calling America back. Right. And sadly, there's no national leader either. Coming up? There are no national leaders who are even describing what made America great in the first place and then calling America back. That's the great missing thing today. More with Os Guinness when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Os Guinness has done a valuable work for us in his book, The Magna Carta of Humanity. He's helping us understand, in a more nuanced way, our profound indebtedness to the biblical notion of covenant and the compact we have made with one another in this great experiment of a democratic republic. Let's pick up on more of Os Guinness with Eric Metaxas. I'm amazed by the idea that what you describe as a covenantal what? System? How do, how do you put it? Mm -hmm. Covenantal political order. Okay that we see this only three times emerging in history. First, at Sinai, in Exodus, 3,400 years ago, which is astonishing, that out of nowhere in the desert, this extraordinary idea would come out, which then eventually leads through the Reformation to what we call America. It's at least fascinating historically. You, you mentioned the Swiss. I really don't know much about how their way of doing things came about. Can you touch on that for a moment? I don't know the full details of that. It goes back to the Articles of Confederation and so on, way back in the 1200 or so. But so, they didn't put their stamp on anywhere else, whereas the American Covenant Constitution became a model for the whole world, but often without the underpinnings. It's important to say that the Hebrew Covenant wasn't unique. You had Hittites and the Irish oath ceremonies and so on, but it was, it was quite distinctive. It's the first time that God himself made a covenant with the people. 
And unlike the Hittite covenants where you had something very binding but a very narrow area, like a legal contract, the Hebrew covenant covers the whole of life. And if you think of that, it's quite extraordinary that when the Lord of the universe puts forward a covenant, it's not ratified until the people say three times in Exodus, all that the Lord says, we will do. That's the origin of the consent of the government. So how would the American covenant differ from the Hebrew covenant? The American covenant is not a covenant with God. The Hebrew is. It is at best a covenant under God. In other words, we the people are covenanting with each other. But it's not in any way a covenant with the Lord. Now that becomes very important because under God used to be a very important idea. You can see how Lincoln brought that in. But under God means an awareness of God and an accountability to God. And now we've got sort of notions of God on our side, which is a very different sort of thing, an instrumental view of faith, that we can use religion to bolster the nation. And that's extremely dangerous and very wrong. And Lincoln was very clear of the difference between under God, which is right, and God on our side, which is dangerous. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to your friends and send them to ChristianOutlook.com and encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pouchon, Mike Cook, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.